What up, y'all? Welcome to Queer Walk, the podcast, the insurgent bi-weekly audio space. I'm still I'm still working on the S. I'm still working on the S. If y'all have suggestions, let me know. I am money. Um, yeah, and I'm I am thoroughly confused about why this Black History Month ain't hitting the way other Black History Months have. I don't know. Maybe just everything feels different because of all that has occurred in, <laughs> over the pandemic, but it it just it just ain't feeling uh, ethnic and celebratory enough for me. So <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and drop the intro because that does feel celebratory to me. Love your chocolate demeanor and your cocoa kisses. I see your flow from a distance. Your vibe incite my submission. I give you all of me. Wanna make you proud of me. We see the God in all you do. Your light is harmony. Every type of darkest night, brightest light. I'm loving your soul. They hate you, replace you, take you, but know that you go. Worldwide from every continent. I just want you to jig a little bit. Move them hips, feel that bliss. Hug your sis, make a fist. Don't resist your temptation. You're amazing, no limitation. My favorite in this matrix. We move by your vibration, and that's love. I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby, you love. I hope you hear that on the daily, cause baby, you love. I hope you hear that on a daily cause baby you love, you love, All right, so you can find Queer Walk on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Walk Pod, P-O-D, over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Queer Walk Pod. You can find Queer Walk on Tumblr, where it all began at queerwalk.com. And you can listen everywhere you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, CastBox, all the places. And if you enjoy Queer Walk, there are two major ways that you can um, support me in continuing the podcast and keeping it going. The first way is by loving us out loud. Uh, use the hashtag QueerWOC to talk all things the podcast on all your favorite social media platforms. Uh, rate us, review the podcast, um, put us in a little like podcast you should listen to or tag us <laughs> in those posts that people make. Uh, shout out to Wondery for including Queer Walk in the like Black History Podcast Roundup. Thank you so much, Wondery. Um, yeah, and reply. Send me Queer Walk of the Week suggestions, topic suggestions, because I really need them, and your Curve Chronicles to QueerWalkPod at gmail.com. The second way that you can make sure that Queer Walk keeps coming is by contributing your money um, to keep the mic on. I need support. I feel like I feel like it's a lot harder to do the pod now, and I just need some support. Um, it would be great to have help, and I can do that if I could afford it. So you could send a one-time donation over on uh, Queerwalk's Cash App, which is dollar sign Queerwalk Pod P O D. Or you can become a sustainer of Queer Walk by giving a small monthly contribution over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash queerwalkpod, P-O-D. I've been doing the Euphoria uh, reviews over there. They're like up on Patreon. And I think I'll probably just do, you know, black ass queer <laughs> reviews of stuff that I'm watching over on Patreon until I have like a more... Um, thought out idea of the exclusive Patreon content, you know, or patron exclusives. Um, but right now, I encourage you all to support in order to keep these bi-weekly episodes coming and make it possible. All right, so I'm going to move it on along to the Queer Walk, Queer Walk, Queer Walk of the Week segment. And the Queer Walk of the Week segment is where I highlight some queer person, some queer woman who is doing some dope shit, somebody that I think y'all absolutely need to know about, or somebody that I just want to give their flowers, you know. And this week is no different. 
I'm so excited to do, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I was saying that Black History Month don't feel like it's hitting the way it usually does. And so I wanted to uplift somebody who is like creating Black history in real time, uh, who I've followed on social media for a while. I don't even know how I came across them in the queer social media world. But this Queer Walk of the Week is archaeologist and a beautiful uh, wall-hanging creator, Ayana Omilade Fluellen, who I, in my head, know as Illegible Musings because that's their Instagram handle. Um, and I like follow them on Instagram. But yes, their name is Ayana. So Ayana is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of California, Riverside. And as an archaeologist, um, Ayana is part of only 1% of archaeologists who are Black. I thought Black therapists were underrepresented. At least we make up 4%. Damn, like 1% of archaeologists are Black. But through their work, um, Ayana's definitely not trying to keep that 1% that way. Um, They co-founded the Society of Black Archaeologists and um, is a board member of Diving with a Purpose. So I wanted to talk a little bit about their work and why I am shouting them out as Queer Walk of the Week. So Ayana's work is Black history, y'all. It um, centers and focuses on charting our journey as like Black folks in this uh, part of the world. So what they do is they go on these dives off the, oh my gosh, just like the pictures on Instagram. And I think they were featured in like National Geographic. Um, So they go on these dives off the coast of St. Croix and um, around the Michigan Great Lakes area. And what they're doing is they're, they're working with this team of other Black archaeologists to look for Um, ships look for wreckage from ships that carried enslaved folks they've also discovered like parts of um a tuskegee airmen aircraft which for folks who might not know the tuskegee airmen were the first um black military aviators in the united states so just literally charting black history with their work um not to mention they're like a visible black person who is diving and can swim. And I I also think that that is dope and doing something as far as uh, black representation. I listened to this episode. Oh, was the, the podcast was called into the depths. Um, and Ayana and their, uh, partner were, uh, highlighted on episode two of that podcast and I listened to them talk about like creating the society of black archaeologists and I encourage you all to listen to that because it just I don't know it's I always love origin stories of, of black shit and and it also is really inspiring that you can see like a dearth of something as a student and just out of your passion for it, kind of congregate other people around it to create the knowledge that we wish we could learn in school. This quote from Ayana, I think is so beautiful. Um, Ayana says that archaeology is a way of showing the history as opposed to telling it. Um, and, And they continue, archaeology really makes our history tangible in a way that it can't be denied. It's important in our country right now and in an environment that is thriving on misinformation um, to have this history, this tangible history. And when they're not diving and doing that, um, that type of Black history discovery, their on-land work focuses on Black women um, in the post-emancipation era, era of America and how they dressed to kind of subvert racism, sexism, and classism. That Oh my gosh. I, this is why I love Eric Darnell Pritchard's work. <laughs> when um, the first piece I ever read by Eric Darnell Pritchard, they were kind of like breaking down the fashion of um, Pariah, the movie. And so I just love when people talk about dressing as like a literacy, as an important thing 
Um, and Ayana is doing that work on land in addition to the, the work they do in the water. So I encourage you, I'm going to put the link to the full um, like highlight of Ayana's work. I encourage y'all to follow them on Instagram at illegible underscore musings. If you want to see those beautiful wall hangings that they create and also um, their fashion is, is very fly, as you could probably imagine from somebody who studies it. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I just think that they're doing dope shit and creating black history and, and, and showing black history in real time. So shout out to Ayana Omilade Fluellen. It's time for that black feminist healing. This, that real shit that make believe. Come on, money, please help me get my shit together. I listen to the moment when times get rough. Put all my headphones, turn it all the way up. Who's gonna give you grounding tips? There's nobody better. Oh, money, help me get my shit together. Okay, so I'm going to hop into the mental moment with money for this episode. So I, Dr. Money, am a licensed marriage and family therapist. And this is the segment where I really just try to integrate this like mental health stuff that I'm doing into something helpful for us as queer folks of color. And to be quite honest, I've been like pretty burnt out around being a therapist and feel pretty hopeless around it right now. But um this episode is supposed to come out the same week as Valentine's Day. And um, and also, like, Audre Lorde's birthday, um, Toni Morrison's birthday, my friend Yanira's birthday, my nibbling Chael's birthday. So I'm just, I'm thinking about love in all its forms this week that this episode is supposed to come out. And that coupled with the burnout of mental health shit, <laughs> I thought that I would do something a little lighter this episode than narcissism that I did last episode. If you want to hear my mental moment on narcissism, go check that out from the last episode. But today I wanted to talk about a theory of love, um, Sternberg's uh, triangular theory of love. Now, this is a theory, uh, to be honest, I feel like this was probably one of the first systemic introductions I had as a therapist of systemic thinking was the Sternberg um, theory of love. It's very relational. And I learned about this in undergrad, but I mean, (laughs) maybe other folks were not taking (laughs) human development and psychology classes in undergrad. So I thought it might be fun to learn a theory of love. There are other theories of love, you know, the one that names all the Greek names like Eros and Storge and all that stuff. And um, another one I can think about is like, I don't know, like attachment theories of love. I'm not doing those. Um, There are other theories. I really wanted to talk about this one because I think it's cute and it's also encompassing of other types of love than romantic love, which I feel like people get really stuck on around this time of the year. So, okay. Developed by psychologist Robert Sternberg in the late 80s, um, Sternberg's theory of love posits that love is really composed of three main uh, components. Those components being intimacy, passion, and decision or commitment, which I'll like talk a little bit about. So the, the combination of these three components give us seven different types of love, which I will also talk a little bit about. Um, and that these loves, these loves are not always confined to a romantic or sexual relationships, but in fact, love can come out in other forms of interpersonal relationships like familial, friendships, um, companions, and things like that. So the three components that Sternberg uh, asserts makes up the seven different types of love are intimacy, passion, and decision slash commitment. So intimacy, as defined by Sternberg, intimacy is a feeling of closeness, um, familiarity, connectedness, and a bond with someone. I would, I would also include yourself, like you can have intimacy with yourself, feeling like you know yourself, that you are connected to yourself and feel safe with yourself. I think that's a type of intimacy as well. 
That's my add on though. So don't 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 quote Sternberg when you're talking about self-intimacy. That's Dr. Money, okay? <laughs> the second uh component of love is passion. So passion, Sternberg asserts, involves feelings of like desire, like just a deep yearning for. And this could lead to physical attraction, but it doesn't always have to lead to physical attraction. Um, passion can also look like romance um, and and also just like straight up sexual with none of the like wanting to be around somebody after. <laughs> and last but not least, the last component of love that uh, that Sternberg asserts is uh, decision slash commitment. So decision slash commitment involves feelings that lead you to want to be connected to someone and move with each other towards common goals, like walk with each other. And so depending on what combination of these three and like the extent to which you experience these three make up the seven different types of love that Sternberg uh, discusses in his 1986 article where he first talks about this theory of love. So what are those seven types? So there's a lot of different graphics that put the seven types on kind of like a triangle, which with each of the sides of the triangle, um, it's an equilateral equilateral triangle, (laughs) like all all things being equal on the triangle, that you have intimacy, uh, decision, commitment, and passion on each leg of the triangle, and the different types of love in the places where those connect based on what what you have in that love. So the seven types. So the first that I want to talk about is liking. So the first type of love that is articulated is a liking love. This is a love where it's only intimacy. Um, You want to be around this person, you feel connected to them, but passion and like a long-term commitment is not there. A lot of people categorize friendship in this component, this like liking love. I <laughs> I don't know about that because um, I would say that friendship could also be at another point, which I'm going to talk about later, um, that also includes commitment, right? You could want to work towards common goals and share life with friends as well. It makes me think about my comrades, my homies, you know, my folks in the struggle um, that I share intimacy and commitment with. So while the liking love is often called friendship, I think friendship can show up in other parts of love too. The second type of love is infatuation. Infatuation is the type of love that only includes passion. It's characterized by feeling lusty and like physically drawn to someone, but without necessarily wanting to commit to them or even liking them, that you share a closeness with them. Um, Infatuation is, you know, the like hot, the fiery, but not necessarily anything past that. And this could just be that there hasn't been enough time for like another bond to build, you know, so you could feel infatuation by that, like looking across the room and seeing somebody and then the other type of love grows later. Or you can just be someone who experiences infatuation and not necessarily the like closeness that comes with commitment. Okay. And the third type of love that only has one component is empty love. Now, (laughs) empty love sounds a little dramatic, but empty love is characterized by commitment without passion or intimacy. What I remember from um, the class where I learned this from undergrad is that most of the time, empty love is like a a stop on a station in a long-term relationship. You know, (laughs) it's like, um, you've had these other experiences of of love and a stronger love kind of just deteriorates into empty love at points in a relationship. But I think we can see this in the reverse, too. It's not always that your relationship has to deteriorate to empty love. 
I think your relationship can start with empty love and grow into other forms. That's why I wish there was another name for empty love because it's just like commitment only. So I think about this a lot with like the folks that I was campus organizing with. It's like I had a deep commitment to them, but other types of, you know, wanting to be around them came or didn't later, (laughs) you know? So it's like, I love you politically because I'm committed to you, but I don't want you over my house. (laughs) You know, it's like, that's different. That's a different kind of love. Um, So I think, and, and you can even think about that in the context of romantic relationships, like arranged marriages, where we are committed to this and maybe other types of love come later. Like I might feel passionate about you later. I might feel intimate about you later. So that's empty love. The commitment is there, but the passion and the intimacy is not. Okay, now we're moving into the sides of the triangle. So the types of love that contain two components. The first is romantic love. Romantic love has intimacy and passion, but not necessarily commitment. Romantic love bonds people emotionally because, you know, you feel all the I want to be close to you and I, you know, feel the like, I feel the like lovey-dovey things about you. You might have really deep conversations. Uh, Y'all know all these intimate details about each other. The like sexual chemistry is bomb. Y'all have like this... um, Just like this really intense connection to each other. But long-term commitments and future planning of that relationship might still not be discussed or may be undecided. So that is romantic love. You have all the intimacy and all the passion, but not necessarily commitment. I was reading this other article. I'll see if I can find it to put the link in the um, description of this episode. But there was this like, a marriage and family therapist who was writing about romantic love as sort of like a newer phenomenon that kind of developed alongside novels and like people writing romance novels and stuff. And so I thought it was interesting that partnering out of romantic love is like that new because when we talk about it now, we kind of prop romantic love up as like the pinnacle of love and the only way or the only reason you would partner with someone. But that hasn't necessarily always been the case, you know? I also think that romantic love, this is just my personal, but I think romantic love uh, can be like really uh, short-lived, you know? I think it goes in cycles. Like you might experience it at the beginning. Then you might experience it when you go through like a change with that person, you know, whether it's like moving in with somebody or deciding to start a relationship or whatever. But I think romantic love kind of goes in spurts. It's not like this constant, always state of love. All right. What number am I on? Five? Yeah. Okay. So the fifth type of love in Sternberg's triangular theory of love is companionate love. So companionate love, you probably have already caught the theme here. It has the liking and the intimacy, but not the commitment. Companionate love is what I also think can be categorized as friendship, but a lot of people don't ever name companionate love friendship. So companionate love is intimate, but it's not the kind of like, you know, hot, spicy, passionate sort of love. It includes the liking component component and uh, deep commitment to each other. You choose to do life together in companionate love. There's talks around long-term commitment and companionate love, but there's like minimal or maybe even not at all like sexual desire for each other. When I was doing all this uh, research on queer women of color couples, when I was writing my dissertation, a lot of people talk about companionate love with uh, with queer women relationships because of this like totally blown out of proportion like um, uh, phenomenon of lesbian bed death. I, I one day maybe I'll do a mental moment on that. It's like not a thing. All couples go through lulls in their like sexual 
lives with each other. I don't know why lesbian couples got so pathologized with that, but in those kind of like lesbian bed death articles, they would talk about this like companionate type love. Like they're committed to each other. Um, the intimacy is definitely there, but the passion has maybe gone out of the relationship. And again, I feel like this is like any relationship can kind of experience this, not just be founded on it. So where I would categorize companionate love as a friendship, that's how all my friendships kind of feel. Other types of relationships can be this in stages. Number six, fatuous love. So fatuous love has the commitment and the passion, but not the intimacy. Fatuous love is um, typical of like this like whirlwind courtship romance where there's all this passion that motivates the the relationship starting and even like the commitment, like let's get married right now. Let's like run away and do this thing. Um, But there's not a really stabilizing grounding of like intimacy. So like, what are the things you like? Do I feel close to you yet? Um, Can, can I tell you these really intimate things about yourself? Do you know these intimate things about me? Right. It's just like the heat of the moment, passion and the having the conversations around commitment. I think fatuous love could easily um, move into another form of love. If you have like the passionate part about somebody and like are drawn to them and the commitment there to like a long-term endeavor with someone, I think you could easily become intimate with that person. I'm thinking of this terrible queer movie called Duck Butter. (laughs) But I think that is a great example of fatuous love. It's like, we have all this passion for each other. We are going to lock ourselves in for the weekend and commit to each other. (laughs) But, um, But do we have intimacy? Will we be able to like flow with each other? That's yet to be discovered. So I think fatuous love could easily grow to other types. And last but not least, the seventh type of love that Sternberg uh, theorizes is consummate love. Consummate love is the only love type in this theory that has all three components, intimacy, passion, and the decision to commit. Consummate love represents um, like this ideal relationship in this theory, right? Like this is kind of like where all romantic relationships should kind of like aim to have love. They have like the sexual connections of uh, passion. They get each other and feel comfortable and supported and safe around each other, like in intimacy. And they've had the long-term planning, commitment, I'm in this with you conversations that allow for the decision to commit. I think the way this was originally written, because it was in like the late 80s, is very monogamous, as you can imagine. These ideas of like choosing each other and not seeing anyone else as like part of their love or whatever. I hope, I hope this isn't just my little bubble of the world, but I hope we've kind of like moved past that idea and know that healthy relationships are embedded in healthy uh, social connections as well. And even if we don't have other intimate partners, we have to have other life partners, like friends, like family members, like chosen family, in order to have successful intimate relationships. And so I think to experience, to, to even give yourself a shot at experiencing consummate love, you have to be experiencing the other forms of love as well. You just have to have the random people that you like. (laughs) You have to have the like, um, you know, the folks you're struggling with who you commit to long term um, that aren't, you know, sexual relationships. Like you need you need other supports as well in order to have a healthy relationship. So those are the seven types of love as theorized by Robert Sternberg. 
And yeah, I will put a link to like a graphic or maybe I'll like post it on the Instagram, like a graphic of the love triangle, not a love triangle as in, you know, Cassie, Maddie and Nate from Euphoria. (laughs) I love the love triangle with the three um, components of love, intimacy, passion and decision slash commitment. So, yeah. So if you were solely focused on romantic love this week because of all the, you know, all the everything in the air about Valentine's Day, I encourage you to think about other forms of love in your life. And maybe you can find some relationships in your life that fit into some of these categories and maybe you want to shift them into others. Or maybe you're realizing that the relationship you're in is stuck in this one relationship type and you want to experience another. So yeah. Seven different types of love. Who'd have thought? Okay, so I'm going to move it on along to the topic segment. Um, I actually have a topic this episode, and I kind of just want to like, I want to talk my shit about intersectionality for a second, because I think the like, the concept drift has gone a little too far with intersectionality. And there's this um, amazing thing happening right now that I think highlights the point that Kimberly Crenshaw was making in 1989 when she first coined the term intersectionality. That intersectionality is specifically for black women. Okay. And I think, you know, we've, we've have a, a, a enriched understanding of gender now than the way it was being talked about in 1989. So I think we could say that intersectionality applies to black folks who don't have gender privilege. (laughs) And if you do not have intersectional identities, there is no way that intersectionality applies to you, Susan. So um, I just wanted to talk about this uh, Tesla discrimination shit and just um, kind of, you know, just work out some stuff. I encourage y'all to give me feedback. Uh, you know, hit me up on the social medias at Queer Walk Pod or use the hashtag Queer Walk to talk about this because, yeah, I'm just thinking out loud and I haven't talked to anybody else about this. So y'all are getting it hot on the, <laughs> on the podcast. So, woo! So y'all, As I was looking this up, because one of the folks I work with um, for therapy told me about this, that Tesla has been trying to scrub these discrimination lawsuits from the Internet, like trying to bury them. But y'all, working for Tesla as a black person, apparently, (laughs) uh, Tesla has paid out over $137 million to black workers over racist abuse. Why have I not heard about this? <laughs> They've paid out millions, millions of dollars to black people for racist abuse at work. So I wanted to talk specifically about Kaylin Barker, who is currently suing Tesla and how her case relates to intersectionality as um, Kimberly Crenshaw wrote about it in 1989. So, okay. All right, y'all. So Tesla is garbage. And I just, I mean, I didn't have any doubts about that. I mean, any any big corporation or company is going to be horrific. But the like, this is really, I'm going to tell y'all, like, if you are very sensitive to, like, racist abuse, you know, or um, this is not, this is not microaggressions. I'm just going to say that. And if you're, um, you know, sensitive, I mean, they, to ableist language, to, uh, you know, queer phobia, that is what Kaylin has been experiencing working for Tesla. All right. So she's currently suing them. Uh, it's actually, I think she worked at a plant, a factory, a Tesla factory in California, Uh, And her lawsuit alleges that they were fostering a climate of racism and homophobia after she endured uh, racist and homophobic slurs and physical harm from folks she worked alongside and supervisors. So Caitlin used to work for Tesla, Tesla inspecting brake parts. 
She said that there would be all kind of comments on the line about her race, her sexual orientation and her gender at the plant. But she kind of just like ignored this. You know, she's like, whatever. This is these are like co-workers. Fuck them, basically. But one day at work, one of her co-workers hit her with a hot grinding tool, which I don't even know what that is. It sound nasty. It sounds like I should be into getting hit with a hot grinding tool, but not in this, not at work, not in this situation. So, um, so Kaylin was hit with a hot grinding tool and said that the coworker who hit her with the grinding tool called her a dumb N word bitch. Right. I'd be like, I'd be, I'd be saying uh, the A, but I don't want to be saying no hard R on here, you know? So she was called a hard R dumb B, right? This is okay. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. I, y'all, as I was reading this, the article was deleted. As I was reading this, I like went back to go see it. And I was reading it as I was talking to my sister. And I was like, oh my gosh, wait, where'd the article go? And I shit y'all not, as I was reading it, the article went away and another article populated talking about how like Tesla CEO donates blah, blah, blah to charity. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I got paranoid and I copy and pasted everything I could find about Caitlin Barker's <laughs> case into a Google Doc. So if y'all want to read it in full... I, I I did the legwork. I did the um the Googles and copied and pasted because I just got super paranoid and was like they like in real time Tesla is trying to scrub this from the internet. So if y'all want that Google Doc, just <laughs> hit me up. <laughs> um and so after Kaylin Barker was hit and called a dumb N word B word, <laughs> um she reported this obviously. Um, and the coworker was fired two weeks later, but was shockingly rehired two weeks after that in another department. So, and they also didn't give her any forewarning or explanation as to like why they were rehiring this person. And also like explain why they were rehired after this. And mind y'all, this is after she's been enduring comments about her sexual orientation. In the lawsuit, they call her a gay woman. So, you know, she's gay. They've been making comments about her being black. They've been making comments about her being a woman. And it just escalated to this point of her getting hit with this tool, right? Um, And so what she says is like, I feel like I've been tortured and sent back in time for African-Americans before civil rights. She's 25, y'all, a baby, a baby. Um, And she describes what she experienced working for Tesla as violently, physically, mental, and emotionally harmful um, because she is an African-American lesbian, right? She said, like, this was happening to me because I am an African-American lesbian. She complained to supervisors, to higher ups, um, and they fired her on October 29th. They, um, a court, their reason for firing her was that she refused to sign this like document of insubordination. I guess she was like defying what they told her to do after she reported all of this abuse. And she was like, hell no, I'm not signing that. So they fired her for not signing it. She sees this completely as retaliation for her reporting, um, what she experienced and listen to this. So three weeks before they fired her, they had to pay out that huge million dollar um, settlement, like $137 million settlement to Owen Diaz, um, a black Latinx uh, uh, man who experienced racial abuse at work. And so the the uh, Tesla like spokesperson said that they felt like the company had come a long way since um, Owen Diaz's claims. And so they they dismissed Kalen's because they paid out this uh, Afro-Latinx man, this $137 million. And they pay, I, y'all, I went into a rabbit hole after this. They um, also paid out another black man a million dollars for racist abuse at work as well. 
And this happened, all like those two payouts happened three weeks before they fired Kaylin. And they actually used those cases as justification for why they were essentially ignoring Kaylin's claims. They're like, what are you talking about? We've improved so much since that lawsuit. You, what are you worried about? And herein lies the rub. So, <laughs> so this is why I really wanted to talk about intersectionality. And what I, y'all... I really don't like doing this. What I actually might do is kind of like read from Kimberly Crenshaw's article. One, to like rejog my own memory. And two, to kind of like say what she actually said um, in explaining what's going on (laughs) with um, intersectionality. So what I think is really important about Kaylin Barker's case in connection to intersectionality is not just... um, like that she's, you know, a black lesbian woman and has this case happening right now, but also that it is a motor company. So what Kimberly Crenshaw was actually writing about when she uh, first articulated intersectionality was Title Seven, um, Title Seven cases. And for folks who uh, might not know off the top of their head, Title Seven is um, titles, it refers to Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, a lot of people might be familiar with Title Nine. It's the like gender part. Title Seven um, prohibits discrimination based on race, religion, um, national origin, and it was revised to include um, ability and uh, sex after the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. Okay, I'm going to totally butcher this name. But so in Crenshaw's article, she discussed the case of DeGraffin Reed. DeGraffin Reed versus General Motors, right? So, oh my gosh, if y'all have ever taken (laughs) a diversity class with me, y'all have heard about this. But so in this case of DeGraffin Reed, um, five black women uh, sued General Motors um, and this was this was back in 1970, right? So in the 70s. So they alleged that the employer's um, seniority system of layoff uh, perpetuated discrimination against black women. And so why they said this is that prior to 1964, General Motors did not hire black women. So all of the black women at General Motors were hired after like 1964. And then in 1970, when General Motors had like these huge layoffs, they did it based on seniority. So essentially every black woman who who worked at General Motors was fired because before 1964, General Motors didn't hire black women. So that made them the least senior at the company. Y'all get it? So the issue in this case was that the five black women intended to sue General Motors for discrimination based on being black women. Like, so essentially kind of creating like this new class of people that had not been able to sue for discrimination before 1964. Because before 1964, General Motors hired white women. Um, They also hired black men before 1964, And so what the courts kind of said in this is that black women should not be allowed to combine statues around race and gender to create a quote unquote super remedy that would alleviate discrimination of sex and race discrimination because it would like give them basically two turns at bat is like the the language that the findings of this, the rulings of this court gave, right? So they were like, well, we can't combine discriminations because it would mean that black women would have two chances to have a win or a payout from these discrimination lawsuits. So what the court told them is that they could sue General Motors based on sex discrimination, based on their gender, or race discrimination, but not a combination of both. Thus, (laughs) Thus, I love a good thus. Thus, (laughs) the court concluded that the way Congress had kind of written out this like Title VII is that 
They didn't conceive that black women could get discriminated against for being black and being women, or they didn't intend to protect them for being black and women. You get what I mean? So like the court couldn't make a decision in this case and couldn't allow black women to sue General Motors for being black and women because of the way Title VII was written. So the way Title VII was written made it seem as if Congress didn't <laughs> didn't conceive of there being a black woman who experiences racism and sexism or that they thought if you brought a discrimination lawsuit, you should only be able to use one axis of oppression to to um to sue on. Can y'all believe that they actually use the um, language super remedy? Like if we allow black women to sue for all of the <laughs> forms of oppression they experience, it would create a super remedy to oppression. Yes, motherfucker, that's the <laughs> that's the goal. That's the goal. Can you believe that they were like, nah, y'all can't do that because it would be too much of a remedy. Wow. So now I want to read Kimberly Crenshaw's words about this case and what um, she meant when she was talking about intersectionality. With black women as a starting point, it becomes more apparent how dominant conceptions of discrimination condition us to think about our subordination as disadvantage occurring along a single categorical axis. I want to suggest further that this single axis framework erases black women in its conceptualization and identification uh, remedies of race and sex discrimination by limiting inquiry to the experience of otherwise privileged members of the group. In other words, in race discrimination cases, so think about the two cases before Kalins at Tesla were both two black men, discrimination tends to be viewed in terms of sex or class privilege, blacks. So class privilege blacks, sex privilege blacks tend to get conceived in these racism discrimination lawsuits. In sex discrimination cases, the focus is on Race and class privileged women, meaning white women with class. This focus on the most privileged group members marginalizes those who are multiply burdened and obscures claims that cannot be understood as resulting from discrete sources of discrimination. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Kimberly Crenshaw says, I argue that black women are sometimes excluded from feminist theory and anti-racist policy discourse because both are predicated on a discrete set of experiences that often does not accurately reflect the interaction of race and gender. And, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw ain't talking about queerness here, but we can add queerness as another axis of oppression. Right. That's what Kaylin's case is doing with Tesla. These problems of exclusion, and that's also just, <laughs> just an aside to also stand the Combahee River Collective um, and Kitchen Table Press and all of them. A decade and a half before Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality, Barbara Smith and them <laughs> were talking about simultaneity, right? So, so a different word, same concept. Like um, Combahee River Collective was a collective of black women, mostly lesbians, who said, we do not experience just racism. We do not experience just sexism. We do not experience just queer phobia. Our lives are uh, shaped by the, the, the simultaneity of all of those experiences. As Audre Lorde said, you know, I'd be standing on the corner of, ra of racism, sexism, and, uh, and homophobia. And so Crenshaw continues... These problems of exclusion cannot be solved simply by including black women within an already established structure. Because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that doesn't take intersectionality into account cannot sufficiently address the particular manners in which black women are subordinated. Thus, for feminist, see, I love a good thus. <laughs> Thus, for feminist theory 
an anti-racist policy discourse to embrace the experiences and concerns of black women, the entire framework that has been used as a basis for translating quote unquote women's experiences or quote unquote the black experiences into concrete policy demands must be rethought and recasts. So what she's saying here, you know, I mean, I really don't need to reinterpret Kimberly Crenshaw because like, I, what I love about her as a theorist is that she writes so clearly, right? It's like you can pick up her thick ass articles and understand it because um, she's also a lawyer, right? So this is like a, a law review type type journal. But what I, what I think she's saying is exactly what the court was afraid of, right? If we meaningfully take up the contradictions of how we've written this, we, it would mean we would have to totally reinvent laws around discrimination to conceive of black women's lives. There's this um, metaphor she uses about this intersection, like um, a traffic intersection that I want to read here too. And again, I told y'all, y'all getting this hot. So <laughs> I haven't, I haven't like thought through this in any other spaces, but these are the, the uh, pieces that felt meaningful as I reread Kimberly Crenshaw's 1989 article. The point is that black women can experience discrimination in any number of ways and that the contradiction arises from our assumption that their claims of exclusion must be unidirectional. Consider a traffic um, intersection coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination, like traffic through an intersection, may flow in one direction and it may flow in another if an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them. Similarly, if a black woman is harmed because she is in that intersection, her injury could result from sexual discrimination or racial discrimination. And again, I would add ableism, discrimination, queer phobia, you know, all the other this is like a this is like an Atlanta intersection, okay? It's like six different lanes going in six different directions. It might be a um a traffic circle, you know, a roundabout with all these exits on it. <laughs> Provide uh, and then uh, Crenshaw continues providing legal relief only when Black women show that their claims are based on race or sex is analogous to call, calling an ambulance for the victim only after the driver responsible for the injury is identified. It's not always easy to reconstruct an accident. Sometimes the skid marks and the injury simply indicates that they occurred simultaneously. Frustrating efforts to determine which driver caused the harm are futile. In these cases, the tendency seems to be that no driver is held responsible, no treatment is administered, and the involved parties simply get back to their cases and zoom away. She wrote that in 1989 about General Motors, and here we are in 2022 with Tesla. The parallels, y'all, are just like astounding. I was like, not in my Black History Month. <laughs> so, so it's just like, Totally what she said. Imagine if these five black women who sued General Motors in the 70s were meaningfully taking up, taken up and, and they were like, oh, shit, the way we wrote Title VII doesn't allow black women to articulate their experiences, their unique experiences of discrimination. Instead, they were like, nah, y'all can't do that. Y'all can't add race and sex discrimination because that would that would that would take a super remedy. Y'all would get two turns at the bat. Um, if they had not responded in that way to that case, there would be precedent for Kaylin's case today. And so what Kaylin is doing right now, which I think is so incredible, is that she's refusing to just lodge a discrimination suit based on race based on gender or based on sexual orientation. She's refusing to separate, right? <laughs> so so she is suing for all three. I mean, when you are called, you know, slur, 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 chain of, th of slurs, the, the hate is intersectional. So, so too needs to be the remedy of it. That, that <laughs> is the, the crux 
of intersectionality. It's about the way these systems are not designed to even conceive of our lives when we have multiple marginalized identities. And so I think what Kaylin is doing stands right on the edge of where that 1989 article left off of where this lawsuit from the 70s against General Motors and those five women, she's standing on their shoulders in refusing to separate her identity out so that it makes sense in the law. And I really hope that the outcome of it is probably going to be a settlement. Let's be real. I mean, Tesla is one of these like, you know, giant Herculean companies, it's probably going to be a settlement. But I do hope that even in the settlement, her refusal to separate out parts of her identity are there so that the next person does not have to separate out their identities in order to say that they experienced some harmful shit at these um, corporations. I also um, think about this in a way of like, they what essentially Tesla is saying is like, oh, we paid them two black men for discrimination, so we're not racist no more. And it's like those, those. First of all, no, <laughs> that's not how racism works. And secondly, the way that black men, especially cis hetero black men, experience racism is deeply, deeply different than the way that black women, black femmes, black queer folks experience racism. Racism is gendered, like gender discrimination is racialized. And that's just like not accounted for at all by saying, but we've already done so much work around racism. When a black woman mentions that she's been um, brutally um, assaulted and is being responded to in a particular way because she is specifically a black queer woman. (sighs) Yeah, y'all. So... If y'all have any other thoughts about intersectionality and why I think it's so important to continue to center intersectionality around the experiences of black folks who experience gender discrimination, that's like that's who it was originally articulated for. That's who it's still, you know, disproportionately impacting. I mean, we know we know the things. We know the things, right? So it's like the more um, oppressed identities you hold, the more risk factors you experience, the 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 more of all the the shit you have to wade through just trying to work, just trying to support yourself, just trying to survive. Um, so I just I want to send all the hugs and love out to Kaylin Barker. I mean, she's a 25 year old. Um, and I just think about uh, myself at 25 and trying to make sense of all the like racism and queer phobia I was experiencing at Syracuse. And that wasn't some big, you know, like world renowned company, you know. So it's like to take on Tesla at 25 because of like gender, race and sexual sexuality discrimination. I just send you all the love. I'm going to put the link to the last article that I saw <laughs> about Kaylin's case and also um, Kimberly Crenshaw's full 1989 article. If you're if you've never read it and you're curious about where this term intersectionality kind of comes from, um, she reviewed another case in that that article, too. Again, it's like this this law briefing. But the one that felt like it is just literally paralleled Kaylin's experience was that DeGraffin Reed um, versus General Motors case. So I'll put the link to um, Kimberly Crenshaw's full article, too. And, whew, and I, I, you know what? No more besties and Tessies. Can we agree? <laughs> like, did anybody? Which, did y'all know this? Was I just late? Was I just like late on this? But did y'all know? That Tesla was out here paying out damn near $140 million to black folks for racist abuse at their factories? Was I the only one late on that? No, my Bessie ain't in a Tessie. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. I actually don't know what motor company probably doesn't have a deep, deeply racist uh, history. But this is happening like today. 
Like the the courts accepted Caitlyn's um, case at the beginning of February. So y'all, I mean, this is now. Like Tesla's paying out these these um and paying out these a million dollars like it's nothing because it is nothing to them, and like silencing these cases online as we speak. So was I late or did y'all notice? Let me know. Please reply. <laughs> All right, y'all. So last but not least, I'm going to move it on along into the Curved Chronicles segment. Curved Chronicles is the segment where I talk about my dating woes and wins and or your dating woes and wins as queer folks of color. You can send dating questions, experiences, Curved Chronicles um, to QueerWalkPod at gmail.com or you can just like slide in the DMs and send me something and I'll read it. First of all, I want to thank all of y'all who affirmed me in um, Tammy being trash. <laughs> so thank you for letting me know that like, I wasn't the only one. Um, I would recommend hinge, you know, I think hinge is, is really good. It, it seems to be nice over here. You know, like, um, people, people have been, um, civil, responsive, um, I, like very few catfish profiles. I think hinge might be the girl. Okay. So I also got a response letter slash email. <laughs> I say I'm saying letter like like y'all mail it, putting a stamp on an envelope. But um, okay, so I don't know if you want me to use your name. So um, can I just call you Philly? I know you're in Philly because we met. Um, so hey, but um, yeah. So I'm gonna just call you Philly. So Philly wrote in response to the last Curve Chronicle letter. So, um, for folks who didn't listen to the last episode, uh, the, uh, the Calendula wrote in, um, really unsure about dating someone who was trying to reconcile Christianity with being queer. And so Philly, today's letter writes, um, I'm writing in case this is helpful for the listener who wrote in, um, their Curve Chronicle for last episode. The listener was unsure about dating someone who was struggling with reconciling their faith in Christianity with being a lesbian. I'm glad you chose to give advice on that one because it's a familiar struggle for a lot of black queer Christians, myself included. Years ago, I was once the person who thought it was a sin to be queer. I had to do the work on my own, (laughs) but my ex, now bestie, supported me as I prayed and did research and came to a place of relative peace with my faith and being out and knowing it isn't a sin. It took some time though. What helped me was having community and information about how the interpretation of ancient texts that harm queer people are often done out of context. I just wanted to share info in case there are folks who are struggling with the belief that to be queer or same gender loving is to be out of God's will. I am not recommending anyone should date someone who holds these views because they will get hurt just by proximity to someone who's struggling like that. But I will say, I think it's possible for a person to change their beliefs to live free, loving life centered on Christ and let go of the anti-queer theology. It helps if they have access to the right tools and support. I started following hashtag faithfully LGBT on Twitter and Instagram and also found writers, um, the late Rachel Held Evans and queer black women Christians. Here are some examples of accounts and people to follow that might help. And I will put all of these in the description of this episode. Um, I am Kim Daly, Candy Cornball. um, And I think these are uh, Twitters and Instagrams. There's a book here. Yes, come on, syllabus. <laughs> the Rebuttal, Pastor Ramel D. Weekly. Um, they, uh, Philly says they haven't read it yet, but they recommend it. Empowerment Cathedral in D.C., which is a Black queer affirming church. Come through, D.C., okay. Coach Yemma, which is Y-E-A-M-A-H. Um, she charges for her workshops, but it's a, a queer spirituality space. Solar Endoms, E-N-A-D-A-M-S. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but like I said, I'm going to put all these ads in the description of this episode, which is a Black, faithful, queer woman creative. 
Natalie Lauren Sims, who's a black Christian queer woman, a poet, musician. Um, yeah. And also the Reformation Project, a nonprofit in Atlanta focused on helping Christian churches be affirming to queer and trans people through Bible teachings. Not the not the usual, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin shit. Um, that's my language, not not Phillies. <laughs> but their staff is pretty white, but that it is uh, based in Atlanta. Um, so Philly concludes, hopefully this can be helpful uh, if there's a person or couple that is going through this. Thank you so much, Philly. That was a jam-packed letter. So I just thank you so much for taking the time to write it, for giving that care. See, I love, I love this community, for giving that care to um, Calendula and their, you know, possible boo who was struggling with that. I just like can't thank you enough for taking the time to write this. There's so many resources here. And like I said in the last episode, I did not grow up in a family and a faith that indoctrinated me that any part of who I was was a sin. Um, my I feel like my grandmother was the, you know, church goer in my family. And she was very much a, a witchy Bible person. <laughs> When I think about the stuff she did and what she believed and what she practiced, I'm like, they ain't say that in church. So, (laughs) you know, so I really felt kind of like outside of all I could do was kind of like give my perspective because I felt um, outside of really talking about unlearning these like Christian teachers about things being a sin because I did not I did not have that experience. So I am so, 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 so thankful to you who had that experience, who was able to reconcile still holding your faith, like not having to give it up in order to be queer. Because I think a lot of um, the the thoughts around that is like you can no longer practice any kind of faith if you grew up with a faith, faith that taught you that queerness was a sin, that you can still, you can still practice. You can, there are other ways to express your faith that are not rooted in you being wrong like wrong as a being. So thank you so much, Philly. Calendula, I hope you're listening to this episode and hope this is helpful. Um, And shout out to all the like Christian queers out there. Like I know, I know it is not always easy. So, <laughs> so I won't say it's not easy because maybe some people have had totally affirming Christian experiences as a queer person, but I know it's not always easy. So shout out to all y'all out there all the folks of faith who are queer. All right, y'all. And I think that's going to do it for this episode. I feel like I kind of went in in that topic segment. So woo. Um, y'all, yeah, y'all let me know any thoughts on this episode by using the hashtag QueerWOC to talk all things. Follow me at QueerWalkPod. If you, you know, have some suggestions for me in moving queer walk forward some suggested queer walks or queer pox of the week and all of the things you can shoot them over to me at queerwalkpod at gmail.com or just slide on in the dms i'm out catch you on the next episode bye this episode of queer walk the podcast was made possible Thanks to the monetary contributions of Denicia, Zakia, and Christy W., who became new patrons, and Steph L., who hit up the Cash App. This episode was also made possible by the listeners in Hernando, Mississippi, Southampton, Pennsylvania, and Folsom, California.